You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Susan Golden Meadow, who is a professor of developmental psychology at the University of Chicago, also the author of a number of books. You have Hearing Gesture, How Our Hands Help Us Think, Resilience in Language, Language in Mind, Gesture in Language, and the latest book, which is called Thinking with Your Hands, The Surprising Science Behind How Gestures Shape Our Thoughts. Welcome, Susan. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I was reading this book the other day, and someone saw me reading it, and they came up to me and they said, my grandmother, we always say, if we want to shut her up, we just tie her hands behind her back. You know, and I guess that's a common joke, but you know, there's a grain of truth in that, right? I think, and that's the message of the book, which is that gesture can sometimes be a complement to language, sometimes a substitute for language, and maybe even evolve into language. But by studying gesture, we learn about language, and we learn about the mind, and we learn about how we as humans acquired and developed this thing called language. And you know, we're sitting here online. My hands are down here, and later today, I'm going to go and teach a class online, but we have a room where you can stand up and walk around and move, and so I find that venue, for some reason, I just feel more comfortable with it, and now I know why, right? So I guess one of the questions I would start off with is, why do people have such a dim view of gesture, right? You started off talking about Princess Diana, who was told to keep her hands still. We have parents telling us, don't point. It's rude to point. And there's this concern that you're going to somehow, I don't know, reveal something about yourself or you're going to let people think that you are somehow, I don't know, less educated if you're using your hands. Why is it that we have this dim view of gesture? Who knows why, but it is true across many cultures that we do think if you gesture a lot, you don't know what you're talking about, which isn't necessarily true at all. Or that By gesturing, we're rude. That's politeness. That's Emily Post, things like that's what your grandma says. The beliefs that you don't know what you're talking about, that's what parents worry about. Are you going to look inarticulate? You're going to look lower class because it's the upper classes that tend to keep their hands close to their chest and the lower classes who tend to. But that doesn't mean it's good for you to keep your hands close to your chest and not gesture. Gesturing's good for you. But one of the findings that I found fascinating was that you can actually tell early on in a child's development how linguistically versatile they're going to be by simply looking at their gestures, right? Well, you can prejudge there. You can see where they're going next and see how quickly they're going to get there. So a little kid who points at a cup and says, mommy, doesn't mean he's mommy's a cup. He means that's mommy's cup. A little kid who points at the cup and says, cup, no, is not quite as far along in terms of getting those two ideas together. And that second kid is going to get to be a two-word speaker later than the first kid. But they'll both get there. I mean, it's not the case that the second one won't get there. So it tells you, it can just, it, it gives us a peek into where we're going next. And so if you discourage gesture or you refuse to acknowledge it, then you are slowing down linguistic development to some degree, right? You might be. 
You might be. I mean, you can clearly learn to talk and to grow without arms. They're not essential. But they do facilitate the whole process. And so if you ignore it or slap a kid's hands, maybe making it harder. Yep. Well, what I found also interesting is that I think a lot of people think that your gesture is intended to communicate to some viewer what you're thinking. But we do it when we're talking on the phone. Right? So is that just a habit or is that really all about helping you to formulate your thoughts better? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question. We tried to get at that by looking at people who are congenitally blind to see whether they would gesture because they don't have a habit of gesturing that they're just invoking. And what we found is that it doesn't matter. You don't have to have had any experience seeing anybody gesture. When you start talking, up come your hands and you start moving them. And these blind people will gesture even to people who are also blind. So clearly in that instance, you know, they know what it's like to be blind. They know that their gestures can't be helping these people. So there is some role that gesture plays for the speaker and helps us. But it also plays a role. Well, I remember hearing blind people, when they win a race or something, they spontaneously raise their hands, which I think suggests that with gesture more than with language, the gestures, I mean, they're like onomatopoeias, right? I mean, they have across culture, right? It's not like an arbitrary signifier. I mean, I guess some are, right? So you talk about the emblems. So this or this, right? Those are presumably arbitrary and they don't have any, I mean, I guess this is not completely arbitrary, but those are going to differ from culture to culture. But what I found fascinating is that regardless of what culture you're in, the gestures that these deaf children use are remarkably similar. I know. I think that's very interesting as well, because that's not what we expected. I mean, we expected everybody to do something like this for eat, but the structuring, the way they structured these gestures so that they put gestures for an apple before gestures for eating, and everybody did it, even though in English you say eat the apple, not apple eat. So there's something that is a little special about the way they structure things that cuts across children in all cultures, which I find very interesting. And these are deaf kids of hearing parents who aren't exposed to sign language and can't learn spoken language. So they're doing this without a language model. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you spent a lot of time in the book talking about home sign, right? Which is, again, these deaf kids, I guess they're isolated from other deaf kids. And so their entire developmental environment is surrounded by people who speak, right? And so when they're developing this, they use a type of gesture that's different from what hearing people use, right? So you contrast uh, miming with home sign, right? So what's the difference there? Okay, so there are several differences. So let's talk about what other contrasts as well. But first, miming. So if you were Marcel Marceau, you would, and talking about eating an apple, you'd pick up the apple, you'd rub it on your chest, you'd take a big bite, you'd look expressive, and you'd do all of the parts of the event, the apple-eating event. Deaf children don't do that. They point at the apple, and they do eat. And maybe they'll point at you if they want you to eat the apple, or they'll do eat and then give it to me. So that they are doing gestures that are snippets of the events. And once you've taken those snippets, you have to put them back into a coherent whole into a string, 
And that's where the structuring comes in because they have to make them in some order or not. So not only are gestures different from mimes, which are much more fluid, but home sign gestures are also different from the co-speech gesture that you and I and that every other hearing person uses, which are also aren't mine. So what's so interesting about these home signers is that they're using something different from what their parents do, what their hearing parents do. So it really looks like they're just inventing something for themselves and not copying it from their parents. But their parents can understand it, right? You can too. I mean, it's very iconic. First of all, they're little. I've studied them up to the five, six, seven. They're young children, and we're talking about the here and now. So if I point over there at an apple and I do this, this, you know, it's not astrophysics. <laughs> they can figure out that they're talking about the apple. What I find really interesting is that the kids all point at the apple first and then do eat, as opposed to doing eat and then pointing at the apple, even though it's pretty obvious what the kid means using either order. But they order these things nonetheless. So the ordering is being imposed upon it. And it's cross-cultural. It comes in all cultures, even in languages where you don't say apple eat, but you say eat the apple. Does that give us a window into sort of how language develops in general? I mean, because what you're describing, these are like discrete, almost like words, right? You point and then you do the motion to the mouth. So, you know, whereas the miming is not, there's no sentence structure, right? It's just a it's an action, but these guys are, they're actually creating like almost sentence structure. And I think you, you mentioned that they can build up even more complex sentences using these little discrete concepts, right? Right. Yes. It's definitely, I think they're words. Those little words are composed of parts, little motions and hand shapes that come together to form words. Those words come together to form sentences and the sentences come together to form narratives and the structures are... It's not a full-blown language, but it's very close to what little kids do. Now, I remember reading once someone speculating that our first language was gestural and that language originated when we became bipeds and now we had our hands free. And so I think there was some debate about whether or not the voice box had evolved sufficiently to speak before or after we became bipedal. You steer clear of all those speculations. I steer very that. I don't think my data don't necessarily speak to that, certainly because the children are mo- they have modern day brains. We're not talking about the evolution of language. But I have a feeling just if you look at regular old us people, hearing people, we gesture, and even signers, we gesture along with our speech. It's a very robust effect. So I don't think necessarily that gesture came first. I think we had both together all the time. But, of course, I have no evidence for that at all. None. But I wouldn't go for the gesture-first hypothesis. Well, one of your chapters says something to the effect that if language disappeared, right, but we had a bunch of humans on some desert island that didn't have language, it would very quickly be created. And this, to me, is fascinating because I think we tend to think that this heritage of culture is one that is brittle, right? It took us millennia to develop this thing and it could disappear. So why do you think that is? And certainly, although it may come back spontaneously, I'm guessing it would have to take place with a group, right? So they have these examples. I don't know how genuine they are, but the wild boy of Aveyron, right? You know, I'm guessing those folks didn't have gesture, did they? Because they didn't have anybody to communicate with. Do you need some kind of social environment in order for language to develop? Well, it's hard Probably, but it's hard for us to know. The wild boy of Aveyron grew up in a 
very odd situation, adds to Jeannie, where her parents were cruel to her. I do think that what the deaf kids are doing it is important that they're communicating with somebody and somebody's responding to their gestures. I don't think that the communicative situation necessarily shapes those gestures, but I think it's important to have them, that there be interaction between two people. Now, what's interesting about the home sign situation is that it's not a situation of shared language. So the deaf kids are producing home signs, but what they get back are co-speech gestures, which are not so interpretable if you can't understand the, or you can't hear the speech. So it's a funny kind of, it's as though I were speaking French and you're speaking to me in German. Yeah, you also talk about how when these deaf kids do get together, then their home signing evolves into something that is as sophisticated as the languages that we all speak, right? It may take some generations. So the place that it's been most recently studied is in Nicaragua, where 40 years ago, Deaf individuals used to be pretty isolated in hearing homes, but at one point they created a deaf education system and they brought a bunch of home signers essentially together and they interacted with one another. So at that point they started to develop lexical items that they shared, things like that. But the language really took off when new little deaf kids came into the community and learned the system from these older ones. So there's some evidence that real transmission really helps the language grow. You may need to share it and communicate, but transmission is just essential in order for the language to take off. And of course, that's how all sign languages have grown up for the most part. Just little enclaves where deaf people interacted with one another and then communicated across people and then new people came into the situation and you have a sign language. And so these sign languages were all developed by deaf people themselves. But you talk about how there's like a family tree of these sign languages, which doesn't match the family tree of the languages that are spoken. So I guess what American sign language is descended from French sign language and not British sign language. It's just the history. So somebody came over from France uh, and he brought the language over to Gallaudet. And so our ASL was influenced by French Sign Language. And British Sign Language grew up separately. It's quite different, actually. And can they understand, are they kind of like, you know, French and Italian? I mean, can sign language people understand each other? I mean, I'm guessing the signs themselves, like the word to eat, there's probably a lot of deep similarities across these languages because of the connection between the motion and the meaning of the word. If the signs are iconic, they can be, but they don't have to be. I mean, you can have a different sign for eat in China, it could be something like this. You can have a different aspect of the iconicity that's picked up. And in addition, the structures don't have to be the same. So they're not identical languages by any means. It does turn out that deaf people have an easier time getting meaning out of some other sign language. That could be because the sign languages are more closely aligned, or it could be because deaf people are just better at getting meaning out of people who don't speak their language because they're used to doing it all the time with hearing people. So we don't know that. We just don't know. And I think you talk about how for much of our history, recent history, we've tried to discourage deaf people from using gesture. And this seems a little strange, right? Like why would we want to deprive them of such a powerful tool for communicating? It's a very good question, particularly since 
Right now, with hearing kids, we're encouraging them to gesture all the time with these baby signs and whatever. Why would you encourage a hearing kid to gesture and deprive a deaf kid of gesturing? And it, there's a belief that if you're gesturing and doing something like that, you're going to not learn spoken language. There's no evidence for that belief. Now, another thing you talked about is when the gesture and the language kind of line up and when they don't line up. And I found it interesting that if you just listen to somebody and you don't pay attention to their gesture, then you may not realize that they maybe understand a concept more than is apparent just from their words. I mean, we write down what people say, but we don't write down what they do. I mean, when we take a transcript, right, the transcript is just the words. We don't have any, I mean, if we were describing a dance, we would be describing movement. But when we're describing speech, we just focus on the spoken word. Do you think it's going to change because now we do video recordings of people talking as opposed to just transcribing like in court, right? So in court, you just write down what somebody said and you're going to miss all this other stuff. I don't know, but I think the court situation is a very interesting one. Once it's written down and typed in, it can be accessed. If we videotape everything, we have to figure out a way of accessing those videos and finding the information. So videoing is just, it gives you so much information. So it's not going to be as useful. But I find it very, I mean, I've thought a lot about how can we make use of this gestural information in a court so that it's not overwhelming. And I think it might be helpful to videotape somebody in a courtroom situation, being a witness or whatever. Also take the transcript and look at the moments when new information is introduced. And just take the video and say, okay, who introduced it? I mean, did the interviewer say what color was the hat he was wearing? And that, of course, if he's saying it in speech, it's very clear he's introducing the hat, not the witness. Yeah. That's a leading question. Yeah, for sure it's a leading question. But if you say, what else was he wearing? And you do a gesture for a hat, it's not a leading question. That's also a leading question, but it won't show up in the transcript. Just right. That's just right. So that would be, so, I mean, that's a lot of work to do that, to find the new information. And the other way around, it might work too. So a little kid who says, you know, he's talking about the person who attacked him and doesn't say anything, but does this. And then the interviewer might say, well... Was he wearing glasses? Which sounds like he's leading the kid along, but in fact, the kid introduced it. So I think there can be an undercurrent of conversation in these legal situations, but just videotaping everything and then saying, okay, here we are, take the videotapes and do something with it isn't enough. We have to figure out how to use them in a targeted way. I've thought about it. I think we could do it. Right. Now, of course, part of what you're describing, I mean, there's body language and gesture, right? And so body language is, I guess, the extent to which you make emotional expressions with your face and your posture and all those things. But gesture is different, right? Gesture is what you do with your hands specifically. Well, that's how we've defined it. I mean, Paul Ekman includes the face as gesture and movements that you make to align yourself with another person. So it depends on how do you define it. But we've used hands as, for the most part, the criterion for what we look at. And you can, with your hands, express emotion and affect and whatever, but you can also express ideas. And so I've focused, for the most part, on the ideas, because I think that's where it hasn't been exploited as much. Everybody thinks that nonverbal behavior expresses emotion. That's what Princess Diana's teacher thought. Don't use your hands. You're going to give your emotions away. But she is also potentially giving your ideas away. 
but they didn't even consider that. They wouldn't have liked that either. So, <laughs> so how does gesture help you to think, right? Because again, you do it on the phone, but you also do it when you're by yourself, right? So if you're trying to work through a problem, oftentimes you'll do things with your hands, right? I know you said also that deaf people will talk to themselves right, with their hands. They'll mumble, they'll do all sorts of things, right? So when you're thinking by yourself and you move hands, how does that actually help you to think? We don't really know. We've looked at these things that occur without speech, which we've called co-thought gestures. And it feels like it's functional because people do it. We have to try to figure out what's going on. We've sort of encouraged people to gesture, usually along with their speech, to see whether it's the act of gesturing itself that promotes thinking. Because if a kid who gestures also learns, you don't know whether they were just ready to learn and they did, or whether it was the gesturing itself that helped them learn. But if they haven't yet learned, and we force them to gesture, and the ones we force to gesture don't learn, we have some evidence that the gesturing itself did some work. And so I think you, you talk about a lot of experiments in the book, and just looking at observational correlations is not enough, right? So what you do is you tell parents to encourage gesture or to discourage gesture. And that way you can tease out some of these causal relationships. What are the insights for parents, right? What should parents be doing when they're trying to help? And this would be true for both hearing and non-hearing children. What should they be doing? Right. I think paying attention to the gestures that your kid produces is useful because the kid is expressing ideas. Sometimes it's the same ideas that are being expressed in their mouths, but sometimes it isn't. And it's useful to have that insight into what they do. And parents do this all the time. The kid doesn't say a word and points at the cat. And mom says, oh yeah, that's a cat. And that of course is just the moment when the kid's interested in the cat or points at the cup and says, mommy. And the mother says, yeah, that's mommy's cup. So, And we have a little bit of evidence that parents who do that, who respond to these gestures that are produced without speech, their kids get along faster. You know, it's not a race, so they don't have to get there fast, but it doesn't hurt to help them a little bit. And so what you're doing really is providing input that's tailored to where they are, and their gestures tell you where they are. True for teachers too, not just parents, but teachers in classrooms. So teachers, you talk about how Maybe if you pay attention to what the students are doing with their hands, I mean, it's hard to do if you have a really big class, right? But if you pay attention to what they're doing. So I think you can do it in a couple of ways. Yeah, you can, I mean, if you have a really big class, you can bring individual children up to a board and ask them to do a problem and explain what they're doing. And they are likely to gesture. And you can respond to their gestures and thereby help, you know, the children in the class. Or you can put them into smaller groups and respond to gesture or walk around the room. So I think it's true. It's a little daunting if you have a big class, but I think there are ways of getting around it. Well, and you also talk about how using multiple modalities can help you to, I guess, conceptualize something in a richer way. I mean, I've always thought about this. I mean, when I teach, I will talk, I will move, and I will have images on screen. And the images are critical. If all I have is my words on the screen, it's pointless, right? But if I have an image that is distinct from what it is that I'm saying, it seems to communicate more because they're different. And so is it important that you're using hand and mouth when you're doing co-gesture? Or is it that what you're doing in the mouth is 
discrete and what you're doing with your hands is continuous. I mean, what, what do we mean when we say multimodality? Okay, I think that's a great question. And I think those are just the two hypotheses that we thought about, that either it's two modes, hand and mouth, and you do them together, and that's what's important about gesture, or it's the fact that hand is doing this in a more imagistic way, and mouth is much more categorical because it's language. So you can't figure that out if you're just looking at hearing people. But if you're looking at signers, signers gesture, but their sign language is categorical, just like spoken language, and their gesture is more imagistic. So if sign language, sign gesture mismatches work in the same way that speech gesture mismatches work, that is to predict learning, it can't be about two modalities because the signers are using one modality, just hands, to represent this stuff. And that turns out to be true. So it feels like it's not just hand and mouth. Hand and mouth may help. It may do some work for us, but there's something more. It really, I think, is the way gesture represents information and language represents information co-occurring together. Uh, so you're saying that when deaf people are using sign language, some of the motions of their hands are not linguistic. They're gestural, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So they're doing gestures and speaking with their hands. Right. Yes. That's right. And what we did when we did hearing kids and we looked at hearing kids who produce a lot of these, we call them mismatches, where they say one thing and gesture another. If they produced a lot of mismatches, they were likely to learn the problem. And then when we looked at deaf kids and we looked at how many sign gesture mismatches they produced, they signed one thing and gestured another. If they produced a lot of them, they also were likely to learn. I mean, it may be counterintuitive that somebody who produces mismatches is likely to learn. But really, it's just because mismatch isn't a great name. I mean, mismatch really means you have something in gesture that's additional to what you have in speech. So in some sense, you know more about the problem, but you haven't integrated it. Now, you also said that there are some domains that may require a certain type of linguistic ability, right? So whether it's numbers or spatial relations. But you also use a lot of examples of numerical problems that benefit from gestures. So are there certain things that can really only be deeply understood with sophisticated language? And if so, is that limited to spoken language? As opposed to sign language, you mean? Yes. Or I'm not sure what you mean. So sign language has all of the same levels of conceptual sophistication as spoken language, right? Right. So it's not the modality that's limiting at all. In fact, it's not limiting. You can do whatever you want in sign language, and it works. It's a language. Gesture is not as sophisticated as sign language or as spoken language. But with respect to numbers, I think you, you said something that when children are these home signers, right? The home signers, they don't develop the numerical capacities. Right. So what the home signers do is they will use one, two, three. They learn that from their hearing world. Everybody uses numbers. Um, they can even match one-to-one, one, one number, one, one set, sets of two, and sets of three really well. But that's supertizing. Anybody can do that. When you talk about numbers bigger than three, they get approximate. So if you ask them to match five things, they'll get close. They might do five, but they might also do four. They might do six. And so they're approximate. So what they have are small exact numbers 
and large approximate numbers. What they don't have is large exact numbers. So matching exactly seven to exactly seven, exactly eight to exactly eight. And the home centers are not able, it looks, to develop that without something else from the outside world, which we assume is something like a count list, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, used in certain kinds of ways. I mean, lots of people have theorized what is it about the culture or the language that is necessary to get these large exact numbers off the ground. Not every culture has large exact numbers. So it's not a big surprise that the deaf kids don't invent them. Well, there's a lot of hunter-gatherer tribes that apparently there's, what, one, two, and Many, right? <laughs> so, right, that's right? I mean, there are cultures that have large exact numbers, but there are many that don't, whereas there are no cultures that don't have language. I mean, language is in a, a very deep way more robust than number. <laughs> now, I mean, does it make sense to teach gesture? Because it sounds like gesture is something that is, I guess, almost natural. It's maybe somewhat personal, right? I mean, would it make sense for us to, when we teach language, to teach gesture? And what would that mean? I mean, it wouldn't be like, okay, this gesture means X. I mean, what would it be like to help people to develop better gestural capacity, I guess? Well, I guess we don't know very much about what's poor gestural capacity and what's good gestural capacity. And you're right that everybody just spontaneously gestures. So I wouldn't spend my time teaching somebody to gesture. I would rather encourage them to gesture as they naturally gesture. There are certain areas, you know, foreign language teaching, teaching about tones in Chinese, where people have used different kinds of gestures, a rising tone, a falling tone, and they've used the gestures to represent those sounds. Those are slightly different kinds of gestures from the gestures that we're talking about here. But I wouldn't teach people to gesture. I'd let it rip. But if you take a public speaking class, they will have all sorts of advice on what you're supposed to do with your hands, right? If you want to convey authority or if you want to make your point, they'll be like, oh, you do this kind of stuff or this kind of stuff or whatever. I mean, are those, I guess, sharpening of gestures that we all intuitively understand? Maybe, sometimes. I mean, sometimes I'm not always certain that these folks know what to teach. There's a whole field of rhetoric back from the ancient Romans about how to exposit and talk in certain ways. And there, there are rules about how to use your body and your hands. I do know that when some of our presidents talk and use gestures as they've been taught, they look ridiculous. So you have to be a little careful. (laughs) It's very stiff, right? (laughs) Very stiff and very weird. So you have to be careful when you start to influence something that's so natural. Yeah, I think if we saw a president get up there and do that, I mean, we might think it odd, right? I don't know. I mean, it depends on how they do it. I think some of them do gesture naturally as they're on the stump. But it is true that if you've memorized your talk, you don't gesture much. If you're not thinking something through, you don't gesture much. And for the most part, presidents have a lot of stuff memorized. They're not spontaneously generating policy on the spot. <laughs> so, But I bet if you got him in there in the Oval Office sitting there at a table and thinking, they probably gesture quite a lot. Yeah, I guess that makes sense because if gesture is helping you to formulate your thoughts, then the more unscripted you are, the more you're improvising, then the more gesture you would expect. Yeah, I think that's true. And also for me, if my goal is to instruct, so when I'm lecturing, I can tell when I'm into a lecture, when I finally sort of 
you know, said, okay, I'm here, I'm doing this. Then my hands come up. Then I feel really relaxed. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, one of the things I've discussed with a lot of people is the difference between in-person and online teaching. Now, of course, part of it is that you have just the head, but people talk about this, there's some missing element, right, when you do online teaching. How much of that missing element do you think is due to gesture? Or is it, I mean, there's all sorts of other hypotheses. Yeah. I mean, you know, eye contact is very odd. You think you're looking at somebody, but you're not really looking at somebody. I mean, you can make your screen so that it looks like you're looking at each other. But I think some of it is gesture. And because I have to do this weird thing if I want you to see my gestures, put them up here by my eyeballs, which is a little weird. So people tend not to do that. We could make our boxes bigger. That might be something we could do. But I do think gesture is part of it. It's not all of it, of course. But we convey information with gesture that we don't always convey with our mouths, and that information is lost. What we might want to do is come up with some notation. Has there ever been an attempt to come up with a standardized notation for gestures so that when you're recording the transcript, you could somehow put little annotations that would go alongside the transcript? Well, some people have said the emojis are that. When you do this, you put up this one, and they're very stylized, though. They're really quite stylized. There's this one, which is the, hey, what, what's going on, <laughs> right? That one. Yes, that, and that's a very stylized sort of gesture. Yeah, I don't know if that would work. There, notating dance is not trivial. There's a Laban system, and there have been a number of systems that have been proposed, but it's not well used. It's difficult, even when you're choreographing. It's not written down in the same way you write down a score. The same thing for sign language. There have been systems that have been proposed to write down sign language, and they've not caught on well. So I can't imagine that we're going to do better with gesture, to be honest. So for sign language, do we just transcribe it using, say, English and because there's a more or less one-to-one match between the concepts expressed? Well, there's not a one-to-one match. And the way people write it down is sort of, in, you know, it's not great. We write down... It's like a translation. It's like any kind of translation. Yeah, like any translation, which is, you know, word-for-word translation. Either you turn it into English or you have a word-to-word translation with a few markers for placement and things like that. But it's not easy. And it's not easy to write down gesture. We describe it usually in words, which is not great. In some of my other podcasts, we've talked about sensory deprivation. Do you think it might be worthwhile as an exercise to have people deprive themselves of hearing so that they would become more attuned to what it is that they're seeing when people use gesture? Would that be a useful exercise to strengthen your, I guess, your empathy, your gesturic empathy, <laughs> if that's a word? I think probably not, because what gesture is really good at is integrating with speech. It needs to be integrated with speech. It's one of the reasons co-speech gesture is useless for the deaf kids because they can't hear the speech. And then they see all of these things that we do and they think, you know, and so what they come up with is quite different from co-speech gesture. So co-speech gesture is co-speech gesture and needs to be thought about along with speech. So taking away speech isn't going to do it. If, in fact, you tell people, okay, shut up, don't say a word, but gesture to describe this, your gesture will look really different from the way it looks when it accompanies speech. One of the other things I found fascinating is that there are these commonalities across all different cultures, but there are differences. So the conventional wisdom is that Italian people <laughs> you know, use their hands 
much more than, I guess, Northern Europeans. Is there, I mean, would you be able to predict that based on the nature of the language or what are the, sort of the drivers there? Is that just pure cultural norms? Okay, let me first say that it, it doesn't appear to be true. So that when, I haven't done these studies, but when people do studies of Northern Europe and Southern Europe, they find that gesture rates are not very different. What is different, though, is the size of gesture. So Italians gesture really big. And so they're out there and they're very visible, whereas Northern Europeans are much more likely to be close to the chest. In addition, Italian culture has many more of these emblems, these things that are used for all kinds of things, some polite, some not so polite. So I think that it is a bit of a myth, and we don't know how far it goes. It's really not true. Now, the gestures that I am talking about, there's a more emblemy. These spontaneous gestures, sometimes they're different with language and sometimes they're not as a function of the language. So I'll give you an example. In English, when we say he rolled down the hill, roll down is one clause. And when we gesture it, we say roll down. And so the rolling down and rolling and the downing are are together. But in Turkish... When you express it, what you do is you say, he went down by rolling. So it's two clauses. And the gestures are, he went down by rolling. So they're separated. So the gestures actually match the the spoken language. Right. In that instance, the gestures match the spoken language. Now, we had thought, oh, this is terrific. Now we can use this as input for the deaf kids and see whether they pick up the down and rolling and they're rolling down. They don't look so different. They don't look as different as we would have thought. And I think it's because they're not paying much attention to the co-speech gestures. But nonetheless, co-speech gestures do go hand in hand with the speech to some extent And they mirror that speech if there are differences. Well, I think going forward, I am not going to be shy about (laughs) using my hands when I am teaching and when I'm talking. I'm going to be a proud gesturer. Yes, please do. And encourage your students to gesture. Because when we explain things, we like to gesture. And it will teach you things about your students' minds. So when they do their final projects, I will... Be sure <laughs> to, to encourage them to incorporate that into their presentation styles. Absolutely. Susan, thanks so much for joining me. This is great. I love this book, Thinking With Your Hands. And I am someone who does that quite a bit. And so I'll continue to do so. And of course, there are these other books all about gesture and about language. And hope to talk to you again soon. I hope so. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.